Well, good morning again, church. Um, again, it's always great to see you guys. I just, uh, I appreciate you guys. I love getting to, getting to be here with you guys. Um, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Today we are actually finishing our short series looking at the parables of Jesus. These short stories that he told from everyday life to prove, uh, to show uh, a spiritual truth. Last week we went with one of the smallest and probably lesser known parables of the mustard seed. And so today we're going big. We're going to the, the famous, the parable of all parables, the parable of the prodigal son. This is one of the longest and the most elaborate and complicated of the parables, and it is uh, just a treasure. It's, it's such a famous one for good reason. Uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we want to back up a little bit, the, uh, as, uh, as we often do. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son is tied into all of chapter 15. And we're not going to read all of that today, but it's worth stopping a little bit and saying, okay, where is this coming from? Who is Jesus talking to? And where does this famous parable come from? And it all goes back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This is sort of the inciting incident. This is the the thing that starts it all. Um, So let's look at these two verses as we dive into our time today. In verse uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 15, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We've spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Luke this year, and we've seen how Jesus drew to him people from the outskirts of society, people who were marginalized and pushed aside, the unexpected, the unworthy. But he also drew people whose lives were a mess, people who had sin in their lives, people who were uh, in trouble and knew it. Uh, They knew they needed help. These people flocked to Jesus, and they found hope. They found welcome in Jesus' message. But not everyone was very happy about this. And the religious leaders, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the experts in studying God's law, they weren't too happy. And here, they are watching Jesus interact with these people, and they're grumbling to themselves. This guy, look at these people he's hanging around with. What is he doing? So Jesus hears this, and he responds to them. In verse 3, he says he tells them this parable. Now, before he gets to the prodigal son, he starts with two other small, smaller parables. First, he talks about a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and one of them gets lost. And so he leaves the 99 out in the field on their own, and he goes searching for the one lost sheep. And when he finds it, he, he carries it on his own shoulders, and he nurses it back. He takes it home, and he throws a, a, a huge party. He invites everyone he knows to come and celebrate that his lost sheep has been found. And then he tells another one with the same story beats. This time there is a woman who has 10 coins, and she loses one coin in her house at night. And so she lights all the lamps, she searches everywhere she can, high and low, every nook and cranny, until she finds this coin. And when she does, she is so excited, she wakes up the neighbors, she brings them over. we got to throw a party. I lost this coin, and now I found it again, right? Um, this, this whole, both of these parables are teaching the joy that God has when the lost is found. The joy that God experiences, the celebration. And so this is the same idea that we carry into the parable of the prodigal son. We could call it the parable of the lost son, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So let's read this parable together. Let's hear God's word um, and see what he has to teach us this morning. Let's begin in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. 
Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in, in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now the older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out to him and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many days I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together, church. Father, as your people, we are thankful for your word to us. We are thankful for the gospel truth that you communicate to us. How you show us who you are and what you have done for us. Father, I pray that today we would learn from this text. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This is a good parable. Uh, It's worth reading. It's It's worth digging in on. It is rightfully very, very famous. It is so famous, in fact, that the word prodigal that we call this parable by, that the that the meaning of that word has changed because of this parable. When you think of the word prodigal and what it means, you probably think of exactly this son, someone who went off, they got lost, they, they messed up their life, and eventually they come back, right? It's this idea of a lost son returning. We think that's, that's a prodigal. That's not actually what the word originally meant. If you look up in a dictionary, that's not what it will tell you. Prodigal means having or giving something on a lavish scale. It's excessiveness. It's reckless exuberant. It's being extravagant to the point of being wasteful, having an abundance and just casting out there freely, if that makes sense. It's lavishness, excessiveness. And so this means that someone can be prodigal in either a good way or a bad way, right? So you can be prodigal like the son who goes out and takes vast sums of money and just wastes it. He spends it. He doesn't care where it goes, and, and he spends it all in an instant. But someone could also spend excessively 
uh, to care for other people, to give away what they have, to help people in need. That would also be being prodigal. It would be being generous and lavish in what you give out. And so prodigal really does capture the idea of this parable. And it's not just the son who is prodigal here. We're going to see that, that prodigal being lavish characterizes everyone in this story. The younger son spends freely and recklessly. He is wasteful and he loses everything. But there is also abundant, lavish grace that is given and forgiveness that is given and exuberant, lavish celebrations. So today we're going to say our big idea is that as prodigal sinners, we we receive God's prodigal grace leading us to prodigal joy. As prodigal sinners, we receive God's prodigal grace leading us to prodigal joy. So when we talk about prodigal, keep this idea of lavishness, of excess, of freely spending as we talk about it. So we're going to take those three ideas and look at them one at a time, these three prodigals in our story. And we're going to start with our prodigal sin. Our prodigal sin. This brings us to the younger son, who is the main part of this first half of the parable. This younger son, he's the epitome. He's the example of excessive sin. He is an absolute mess, right? And he, he's just like this young idiot. And he does everything wrong through the first part of the story. Um, and his behavior uh, just gives this idea. He is so wasteful in what he has that he is the prodigal son. Um, he's the epitome of this. Um, he asked his father at the beginning, he asked for his inheritance when his father is still alive, which is really offensive. Now as a father of two sons, if one of my boys came and said, hey, give me the money, dad, I'm tired of this. That's offensive, right? That is deeply rude. And especially in that culture, that is saying, dad, I really wish you were dead. And so I could get the property from you. I'm tired of waiting for it. And even with this like, just, you know, self-centered request, the father gives it to him. And only a few days later, he books it. He's gone. He, he cashes out, right? And he takes that cash and he heads to a different country because he's done with his family. He doesn't want anything to do with his father. He doesn't want anything to do with his brother. He wants none of the family responsibilities or the, or the religious life of following God. He is out of there. And he wastes no time in spending everything he has on a lavish lifestyle. He's uh, living life to the fullest in his mind. He is spending. Um, he is enjoying the pleasures, the privileges of wealth. And before long, this newfound freedom, what does it bring him to? It brings him to destitution. He spends everything. He loses everything. He takes a trip to Vegas and cashes out, and it is gone. And then when hard times come, his reckless living leaves him with nothing left. He has shown himself to be self-centered, and he is a fool. He's left at about as low as you can get for a Jewish person. He is without help, without money, without family, alone in a foreign country, feeding pigs. Pigs are an unclean animal for Jewish people. So this is a degrading job if there ever was one. And he is so low that he looks at the pig food, the slop, and he says, that looks delicious. If I could just get some food. He is hungry. He is starving. He is low. This is where his choices have brought him. He is not just an example of sin, but of excessive sin, of sin that knows no bounds, of sin that has gone completely out of control without restraint. He went big, and in a short time, he's wasted his life's inheritance, the the life's work of his father on this sinful, wasteful behavior, and he's burned every bridge he had in the process. He is utterly lost. He's made his bed, and now he has to sleep in it. 
And for some of us, this might seem very familiar. We might know someone who has made a wreck of their life in a very short time. Or perhaps you look back on your past and you say, oh man, there was a time where I made a mess of things, where every choice I made was wrong, where I blew all my chances and burned down my bridges. When we see the sinful behavior that has, that has hurt us deeply and left lasting consequences. But really, no matter who you are, no matter who we are, whether our life is a mess or whether it looks pretty good and it's pretty ordered, all of us need to see ourselves in the prodigal son. The prodigal son teaches us about sin itself. Sin that is not just for the people we consider the worst and the most in trouble. The sin that is all of us. That is every single person. We are all prodigal, excessive sinners. God's word tells us in uh, the book of Romans, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you think Paul said it enough times there? He, he hammers it into our eyes. We, none of us make it. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all broken, in rebellion, lost, just like the sun. This is because sin at its core is more than just our behaviors. Sin is the, is the place of our heart. It's what our heart is pointed to. Sin is rejecting God's rule in our lives. It is rejecting our Father. We try to separate ourselves from him. We don't want anything to do with him. We want to do it on our own. We want to call the shots. We want to decide what is right and wrong, where I go, where I stop. We want to be God of our own lives. And we choose to live our lives as if we belong to ourselves. And Romans tells us that when this happens, when we refuse the rule of God in our lives, that we, uh, as Romans 1.21 says, we refuse to honor him as God or give thanks to him. And we become futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts are are darkened. Claiming to be wise, we become fools, and we exchange the glory of the immoral God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We have exchanged the truth for a lie. We have exchanged the true God for a cheap idol. And when we do so, we become foolish, as foolish as this young man, this prodigal son. Romans 1.25 says that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. When we reject and ignore God as our creator, as our father, we are as deeply in sin, not just a little sin, up over our heads in rebellion and darkness and corruption. We have totally abandoned our family. We have totally abandoned our father just like the son did. And we have wasted all of the good gifts that God has given us by creating us, by forming this good world for us to live in and this good way to live. We have wasted all of those things in our sin. This, another way of thinking this is to talk about uh, trying to gain the gifts instead of the giver. We look at all the things that God can give us in this world. We look at prosperity, family, um, career, all of these things. These are good gifts from God. God is meant for us to enjoy these things, to enjoy the world around us. But when we want them without God, we're saying, I want the gifts, but I don't want you. Give me my inheritance, but get out of my life. In that way, we are just like the prodigal son. One pastor, when he speaks about this parable, he said that at heart, we sinners, we want to enjoy at the hand of God a great abundance of good things. But we are moved by a blind and a mad ambition to be separated from him. 
that we may enjoy perfect freedom, as if it were not more desirable than all the kingdoms of the world to live under the fatherly care and rule of God. We have made a terrible exchange. And when we do that, when all of us who have sinned, we find ourselves destitute just like the prodigal son. Rejected and abandoned God makes us prodigal, abundant sinners. Now, we want to be clear here. Like, when we do this, when we try and live our lives without God, it doesn't actually matter what we do. Our actions do matter after that, right? It is better to do what we call good in the world than it is to do evil. It is less harmful for us and less harmful for others around us. But at its heart, it is still sin. If we reject God as ruler and we go and build hospitals and care for the poor, we are still living in sin. We are still rejecting God. And that is a crime against our creator, against the universe itself and his rule. That is deeply serious. If we reject God's authority and go and rob hospitals and banks, it's the same thing. The results are worse, the actions are worse, but our heart is equally as lost. So no matter where we are, no matter what you're doing, if you are not following God, if you are not living under the lordship of Jesus, we are in this same place. And in fact, it may be more dangerous to be doing this good life than to be lost in, in, in wicked ways like the prodigal son was. Because if we're doing good things, if the world tells us we are a good person, we're a respectable person, we may never realize that we are as low as this prodigal son was. We may not realize that we are living in the pigsty, separated from our good father. We may not realize until it's too late that we are lost. And so, like the son, who is without hope, we are without hope on our own. In verse 17, the son finally comes to his senses, right? The suffering that he goes through shakes him out of what he's doing. And he says, what am I doing here? Why am I living in the mud and the filth? Like looking at the pig's food and being jealous of the pig's eating. Even my father's servants, even the most lowly servants have better in my father's house. I have to try and go back. Now, he doesn't have any hope of going back to what he had before. He doesn't have any hope of being a son again. He says, let me just be a servant. Let me just have something better than what I have here. Let me just get out of this hole. The same is true of us. When we leave God behind, we are unable to repair what is broken. We are hopelessly lost, prodigal sinners. But, praise God, this is not where the story ends, and this is not where our story ends. Although our sin is great, it is prodigal, God has not left us there. This brings us to our second idea of God's prodigal grace. God's lavish, abundant grace. God shows prodigal compassion, which brings complete restoration. This brings us to the Father in the story. When the Son comes with his hat in hand, with his apology, his pleading ready, ready to fall on his face and beg before the Father, the Father sees him from far off, and what does he feel? He doesn't feel resentment. He doesn't feel bitterness. He doesn't feel anger. He doesn't remember this son who wished him dead and took, took half his inheritance. No, he feels compassion. Compassion. That compassion moves him to run to his son, to embrace his son, and to hold him close. This is the most like, shameful thing that a Middle Eastern head of household could do. Like, dad, like the head of house, he doesn't just go running. He waits for you to come to him, right? 
He's not, he's not stepping down that level. He is humiliating himself. He is his humbling himself to go and embrace his son because of his compassion. He will not hear his son's prepared speech. He doesn't want to hear it. He's ready to take him back. He's ready to forgive what came before. More than that, he is ready to restore him fully to sonship. He won't hear about being a servant. He says, bring him the best coat. Bring him my own ring. Bring him new shoes and sandals. Clothe him in the marks of our family. He has returned. He is back. He is still his son. Now, it should go without saying, the son doesn't deserve this. He's done nothing to apologize. He's done nothing to make right what he has lost. That inheritance is gone. It is spent. He's not worthy of compassion and the honor that the father shows him. It is only the father's goodness poured out. It is only the father's compassion that leads him to welcome him back. This is grace. This is an undeserved outpouring of favor. God's grace. Such grace, it is scandalous, isn't it? It's undeserved. It's so big that it blows you back. Say, whoa, 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 I don't know, I don't know what to do with this. It's far above and beyond what anyone could have expected. It is prodigal grace, and it pictures exactly God's grace, God's love towards those who are lost, towards prodigal sinners like you and like me. Exodus 34 speaks about God's character, and it speaks about this very character that God has, that God is merciful, he's compassionate, and he is gracious. He is slow to get angry, and he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He shows unbelievable patience towards us. When we are rejecting him, when we are hating him, when we are running from him, we are fighting him with everything we have. Rejecting him as our father and wasting the good gifts he has given us. He endures our stubbornness and our slowness. He shows compassion that we don't deserve and he lavishes grace upon grace upon grace. His mercies begin new each morning, no matter what we have done the day before. And so when we are lost, the Bible tells us Jesus came for us and he carried us home like that lost sheep. The hymn reads, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. He bled for us. He died for us. He brings us home and he embraces us. Still, his kindness pursues us. His mercies never fails us. Another song says, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. God's grace is an ocean. You can't see the shoreline. You can't reach the depths of it. It is vast and bottomless. God the Father freely welcomes us back in Christ. In Jesus' life and death, we receive this abundant, lavish, extravagant grace that transforms who we are. We remember, like the Son, we're not just forgiven, which covers our past, which covers what we've done. We're also restored. That gives us a future, where we're going. It's not just correcting the mistakes, it's giving us a way forward. We go from being rebels, from being enemies of God, to being his very children. Being enemies of the kingdom to being ones who will inherit the riches of the king. Like the younger son, we are given the robe, we are given the family ring, we are given the honor of the feast. We are made new. Through Jesus, God brings us into the family and gives us a new way of living and being. 
He gives us the spirit that comes and shapes us anew, that, that guides us into a way of living that doesn't go back to those old ways, that doesn't go back to the old sin. It reshapes our heart and reshapes our spirit so that we can love God and live rightly in the world that he has given us, grace upon grace, not just for yesterday, not just for today, but for tomorrow. It brings us into right relationship with God, and it brings us into right relationship with each other. The prodigal receives back not only his father, but his brother, but his mother, but his family. He belongs again. He has a place. If you have not known the amazing grace of God, find it today. If you are lost, you can be found. Leave behind pride and self-righteousness and embrace God as our Father who has come to us. Repent and believe in Jesus and receive this new life. This is the call of God's prodigal grace. And church, we should also say too, we must never grow tired of hearing about God's grace. We must never grow tired of hearing of the gospel message. Because it's not Christianity 101, right? It's not the basics. It's not day one and then we move on to the better stuff. This is the stuff. This is what we are about. We are to meditate on the truth of God's grace. We are to proclaim it to others. And we are to treasure it until it just bursts out into our song. We are those who are shaped by God's grace. This is who we are. The gospel of God is like a diamond, one pastor writes. It's like a diamond that we can hold up and and hold to the light and twist it around and see all of the different ways, all the different beauties of the light bouncing off it in new ways. No matter how we look at it, no matter what angle it is, no matter what day we see new and greater beauty, new and greater truth in God's gospel to us. Do not grow tired of hearing of the gospel of God's grace. All of our earthly lives, we must meditate on the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and let it adorn our lives. We are gospel people. This leads us to our third kind of prodigal, prodigal joy. The only proper response that we can have to this incredible gift, this this miraculous turnaround from sinner to, to son, is to have joy unspeakable joy. We should rejoice when we experience God's grace and rejoice when we see others experience God's grace. It is cause for celebration. And this is kind of the climax of all three of these parables, right? What do they all end with? They all end in a party. That's a great parable, right? Where does this take us? It takes us to a party, a big, wild, extravagant, lavish, prodigal party. When the shepherd finds his sheep, he invites everyone around him to come and rejoice with him. When the woman finds the coin, she wakes up her neighbors. They must thought, that's kind of weird. But they come over and they throw a party, right? It's great. And when the father receives back his son, who was dead, who was lost, but now is found, now is alive, he throws a party and he spares no expense, right? There is no limits to this celebration. He pulls out all the stops. Kill the best calf. Get the music. Get the band. Get the food. Get the people. We are celebrating today because my son is alive and he is here. We celebrate with inexpressible joy. Our celebration is right and good because it is God's response. It is a heavenly celebration. Jesus says in verse 7, this is from the first parable, but it is true of all of them. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. God is not interested in our self-righteousness. He is interested in our humbling ourselves and repenting and turning to God and being found. God himself rejoices. The angels in heaven rejoice over one person, over you or I, 
knowing Jesus, being found again. This is beautiful. And this has always been God's attitude, God's heart towards those of us who are lost, those who are prodigal sinners. God judges sin, right? God punishes evil. That is because he is just and holy. It's good that he does that. But his desire is never our destruction. Even in the darkest parts of the Old Testament, where it seems gloomy, there is, there is judgment coming, there is darkness there. It is hard to read through. Still, at its core, God has always desired our repentance. He's always desired that we would find life. Look at what the prophet Ezekiel says um, from God to his people. This is from Ezekiel chapter 18. God is speaking here. He says, Therefore I will judge you, a house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. But this is where the heart of it, this is where we get to God's heart. It says, Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgression that you have committed, and make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. God is telling us that when we are left to our own ways, when we are left to our sin, it will be our ruin. It will be our death. But God doesn't want that. He says, turn and live. Come back. The door is always open. God is always bringing us that we might have life, that we might have forgiveness, that we might be found. And when that happens, he rejoices. And so following this heavenly example, church, we must rejoice too at the gospel. We should be people who are not only gospel people, people who are shaped by God's extravagant grace. We are to be joyful people, right? We have been given this amazing gift. We should respond with joy, and we should show the same joy when any person, no matter where they come from, no matter what their past, no matter what they have against us, when they find Jesus, we should rejoice and we should pull out all the stops. It is cause for celebration. But this is not always our response. Enter the older brother, right? The ominous music. Older brothers, we can be tough. Um, the older brother doesn't respond with joy. He responds with grumbling, which sounds very much like the scribes and the Pharisees we met in verse 1. The older brother, the one who didn't leave his father, one who stayed behind, did the hard work on the family business, the one who followed all the rules and expectations. He comes in from a hard day's work, and he sees this crazy, extravagant party. He says, what's going on? I tell him, your son, your brother's back. And he's like, this guy, I hate this guy. What is this? And he's like, I'm not even going in the door. I don't want any bit of this. I'm going to go sulk in the field in the dark. I'm just going to walk around here and brood. Until his father comes out to him. His father comes and pleads with him to come into him. And he just has this spite when he speaks, right? He says, this son of yours, no brother of mine, he has wasted everything given to him. He has abandoned me. He has abandoned you. And he deserves this celebration more than I do. I've been here. I put in the work. Where's my party? Why am I not being recognized here? What's the deal, dad? It's not right and it's not fair. Instead of rejoicing and celebrating, he's grumbling. He's airing out his complaints. And in doing so, he has cut himself off not only from his brother, but from his father. He's on the outside looking in. He's walking around sulking in the dark. This older brother should probably remind us of a reluctant prophet named Jonah. If you remember that story, Jonah was sent to go preach to the wicked nation of Assyria, to their capital, Nineveh, these enemies of God, people who would eventually 
conquer half of Israel. And after a lot of grumbling and a whole deal with a big fish, um, Jonah finally makes it to Assyria. He finally makes it to Nineveh. And he gives the worst sermon ever. He just says, God's going to destroy this place in three days. Good luck. And he just keeps walking through. It's like, whatever, guys. I'm being obedient. And then he goes out and he gets a seat outside the city. He's like, let's get this destruction on. Burn it down. And he waits and he waits. But nothing happens. Because lo and behold, not by any great sermon, the Ninevites, they've repented. They've turned away from their sin. They've embraced God's grace. And God has forgiven them. God has saved them from their sin. And Jonah is furious. He says to God, I knew you would do this. This is just like you. You're always compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and all that. I wanted them to die. They don't deserve this. So why did Jonah and why did this older brother and why did these scribes and Pharisees, why do they have this attitude? Why are they joyless when they see grace played out in someone's life? Why do they grumble? I think there's two reasons that we can see grumbling in a joyless heart. And I think that we should warn ourselves, this might be our attitude. This, this might be the attitude of, of our hearts towards God's grace. A joyless heart, first, doesn't understand their own sin. We grumble when another is forgiven because we think we're better. We think, I don't deserve that, but you do. When we look only to ourselves and what we can do, when we become obsessed with our own goodness, our own works, our own righteousness, our Sunday school attendance card, or whatever it might be, we begin comparing ourselves and we say, I'm at least better than those people. I'm at least better than my brother, than that guy. And so I deserve some grace from God, but I don't think they do. We do not comprehend the gravity of our sin. We don't realize how serious it is. We don't realize how hard our heart is, how turned away from our father it is. The older brother, he never abandoned his father. He never squandered his inheritance, but he is cut off from his father. And what is his complaint? His complaint is like, I've done all the stuff, dad. Where's my reward? He's still doing the same thing his younger brother did. He's still looking for the stuff. He's still looking for the gift instead of the giver. He cares more about what his father can give him instead of being with his father. He's just as lost in his sin as his younger brother is. It just looks different. He doesn't understand the gravity of his own sin. Beneath the behavior, the heart problem is the same. When we minimize our sin and we magnify our own goodness, we cut ourselves off from God and his goodness and his grace, and we alienate our brothers and sisters. We become joyless. We give ourselves a heart of bitterness and envy. We have to take a good look at our sin. We have to know its depth. We have to see ourselves clearly as those who are deeply in need of God's grace. And when we do that, we have no leg to stand on with anybody else. When we see a great sinner forgiven, we say, praise God, because I'm the same way. And I receive that same gift. We need to understand our own sin. Secondly, a joyless heart has not grasped the grace of God. It has not grasped the grace of God. When we withhold grace from others, we fail to understand the depth, the width, the abundance of God's love, of God's grace, of God's mercy. We're hoarding it. We're hoarding like at, a, at this vast banquet. We're hoarding food to keep it away from others because we're afraid we're going to run out. 
And just like the older brother, the older brother feels this way, and so the father has to come out and say, son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. There's enough. There's enough grace for you. There's enough grace for your brother. It will not run out. When I lavish my forgiveness and my love on your brother, it's not taking anything away from you. We need to believe that the depths of God's mercy will not run dry. There's no sin, there's no amount in this world that can exhaust the grace of God shown to us in Jesus. It is extravagant and excessive because it has no limits. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. Grace that transforms our grumbling into rejoicing. And so, church, have we experienced that grace? Both the story of Jonah and the parable of the prodigal son, they leave on an open note. We don't know what Jonah did when God rebuked him. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. We don't know what this older brother would have said. It doesn't say. Did he come in? Did he stay out? I don't know. Why does it do that? It does that because this is the question we're supposed to ask of ourselves when we walk away. What will I do when I am confronted by God's grace? What will I do when I am confronted by my sin? Do I have a heart that is filled with the joy of the Lord? Do I rejoice when my brother comes to see him? Will I rejoice in God's grace given to those who continually make mistakes, those who fall away? Do we join in the celebration when the lost and the broken receive new life? Will we be a church? Will we be people who, who reach out with the love of Jesus? Will we overflow with God's grace and love to the people around us? Or are we going to withhold it? And church, our community will know what, which one we are. We will be known as those who are with Jesus, those who are, who are overflowing with God's grace and with the joy of the Lord in our lives, or we will be known as people who grumble at the city around us. I know a pastor who speaks about the city of Los Angeles, similar to Nineveh. That's a little offensive, right? No one wants to be compared to Nineveh. We live in a lost place. We live in a lost country. We live in a lost world. We've been sent to Nineveh. Are we going to grumble? Are we going to half-heartedly say, like, oh, they repent? Or are we going to love them? Are we going to overflow with God's grace and his love? This will define us. This will define who we are as the people of God, who we are as Calvary Church. Which will it be? Are we going to grumble or are we going to rejoice? Church, let us remember that we are prodigal sinners who have received God's prodigal grace in Christ. So let us go and live with prodigal joy. Let's pray together, church. Father, we can only say that we love you. We are, we are blown away by this grace that you have given to us, Lord. Father, I pray that today we would understand, maybe for the first time ever, maybe in a new and deeper way, that in Christ you are the God who is merciful and compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Lord, make us the people who go out in the grace of God, with the joy of the Lord. 
And make us a people who will go and bring this love, this unending grace to the community around us. Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.